Hello, welcome to the podcast of Chesbro Baptist Church. We're beginning a new Sunday morning series at Chesbro where we are going through Isaiah 53. The title of the series is The Suffering Servant. And the first message in this series is entitled The Astonishing Servant. I hope you enjoy these next few weeks as we go through Isaiah chapter 3. I believe it's one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament and possibly the Bible. Please enjoy. Alrighty, I'm looking forward to this. This is uh, something I've been looking forward to this week. Um, starting this new Sunday morning series. Maybe some of you saw it on Facebook Live or on their Facebook post. But go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 this morning. And uh, I'm just real, really super excited about this because here's what we're going to do. Resurrection Sundays and five Sundays. For the next five Sundays, we're going to be inside of Isaiah 53. We're going to be inside of this prophecy in Isaiah. And uh, it's just so rich and it's so deep. And you can just dig and dig and dig in it and you just keep finding gold and you'll keep finding treasure and you'll keep finding stuff. You could preach 10 weeks on this. You could preach 15 weeks on this. But uh, we're, we're going to do it in five and there's so much more here. And this morning is going to kind of be an introduction into it as well as the first section of, uh, of, uh, of the chapter this morning. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to start reading in Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to read the, just the first three verses starting out. So one last time, I'm going to invite you to stand respect and reverence to the word of God as we read our scripture this morning. Just the first three verses to start out. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53 in verse number one, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised. And we did not esteem him. The title of our first message in this chapter this morning is The Startling Servant. The Startling Servant. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you today and we humbly ask you, Lord, for your help this morning. Lord, what we need this morning is we need the power of God, Lord. We need the Spirit of God to come into our hearts to come into our minds and to help us to focus on this rich chapter in the Word of God. Help us just to let it wash over us as we absorb the truths that come forward from the Word of God as we study it. Be with us this morning. Be with our service. Give us a great service in the house of God today. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Amen. You may be seated. 
Like I said, for the next five weeks, all the way through Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be preaching through Isaiah 53. And this probably, in my opinion, and, and, and the opinion of many other scholars, is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. And um, I, what I want to do this morning is I want to finish reading through the entire chapter. Let's begin where we left off in verse number four. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living... For the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. If there was no other proof that there was God in the Old Testament, that would be enough. I'm sure as I, we read through that passage... And as you heard me read through it, you heard Christ after Christ after Christ. You said, this is Jesus, that's Jesus, this is Jesus, and this over here is Jesus. And you have to remember that this was written 700 years before Jesus ever showed up. If there was no other proof there was a God, and Isaiah 53 was the only proof we had, it would be enough. It would be enough proof. Obviously, this chapter is speaking about Christ. And know the ancient, the ancient Jewish rabbis in the Old Testament, they said this chapter is messianic. That this is a messianic chapter. But from Christ on, they stopped saying that. Because from after Christ, even to today, they no longer claim it's a messianic passage. Why? Because to claim it's a messianic, messianic passage is to claim the deity of Jesus Christ. And they can't do that. 
They can't agree to that. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you a little background on this book, if, you, if I could, please. Now, of course, when we think of prophet, you may think of, of Moses, and Moses was a prophet in that he spoke with God, but spoke for God. But the, the actual office of a prophet actually began with Samuel. Samuel began the actual office of a prophet, and Samuel was a prophet of God, and Samuel even prophesied of the Messiah. And, and you know, Samuel had some bad kids, but Samuel was the one who anointed David to be king over Israel. Now, David was a great king. He was a mighty king. He was one of the greatest kings that Israel ever saw. And David wanted to do something for God. David wanted to build the temple of God. He wanted to build the house of God. He felt very bad that he's living in this plush, nice palace while the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant is out in a Coleman tent out there, you know. He felt really bad about that. So what he did was um, he went to Nathan the prophet and he said, Nathan, I want to build the house of God. Now, Nathan is a prophet, and he's thinking, well, this sounds like a good idea. Why would not I, I allow the king of Israel to build a temple for the ark, to build a temple for the presence of God? And Nathan said, hey, go ahead, do whatever's on your heart. But that night, God came to Nathan and said, Nathan, David cannot build the temple because he has shed too much blood. You see, David made a very poor decision in his life. David sinned with Bathsheba, and that began a snowball effect. And David's life began to spiral out of control, and the lives of his family members began to spiral out of control. And, and it started, the, the innocent blood started when he killed Uriah the Hittite, and his kids were raping and killing each other. And David shed more innocent blood, and the blood that came from that sin is almost incalculable. And God said, David can't do it. He shed too much blood. Okay. Well, here comes Solomon. Let, God, David said, let me gather the, the materials. Let Solomon build it. And Solomon came. And Solomon built the house of God. And he built the temple. I mean, Solomon, God gave Solomon a gift. God gave Solomon the, the, the wisdom that he asked for, and he became the wisest man who ever lived. And with that wisdom, Solomon amassed great wealth. But Solomon had a problem too. Solomon had a lust problem. Solomon had hundreds of wives. He knew thousands of women. And while you may say it was Solomon's son who split the kingdom, really it was Solomon's legacy. It was Solomon's legacy that split the kingdom and the kingdom split between a northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now this northern kingdom of Israel, there was not one righteous king in the whole history of the northern nation. Not one good king, not one. The southern kingdom of Judah where David's line kept going through, there was a handful of good kings, but most of them were wicked as well. 
Now, there arose one king in Judah, one king from the line, in the line of David, who was the worst one. And his name was Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the worst kings who ever lived. The Bible says about Manasseh in 2 Kings 21, 9, it says Manasseh seduced him to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Manasseh had seduced the Israelites to do more evil than the Canaanites that Israel replaced. I mean, these were the same, these were the same heathens that would take their babies and throw them in the arms of Molech and watch them burn in agony and pain. And now Israel is worse than them? Yes. Israel is worse than these people. You know what else Manasseh was famous for? Manasseh took a prophet by the name of Isaiah and sawed him in half with a wooden saw. You see, the people of the southern kingdom did not like the preaching of old Isaiah. Man, old Isaiah, he was an evangelical prophet and he'd get out there and he'd preach against the idolatry of the southern kingdom and he'd preach against them and he'd preach about the coming Babylonian captivity. And they did not like that. He prophesied. Isaiah prophesied. Get this. He prophesied about the coming Babylonian captivity 80 years before it happened. 80 years before the captivity happened, Isaiah was preaching about it because Judah had departed from the Lord. Now, let's talk a little bit about the book. The book of Isaiah really can be split into two big major sections. The first section would be chapters 1 through 39. Chapters 1 through 39 in Isaiah, we can call that the judgment, the judgment on Israel. It was the judgment for them turning their back on God, for turning to idolatry. It was a prophecy about the coming Babylonian captivity. And so we can call the first half of the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, we can call it judgment. Now the last half of Isaiah is very interesting. From chapters 40 to 66, which how many books is in the Bible? 66, that's interesting. But from chapters 40 to chapter 66, we could call that section, the last half, salvation. We can call it salvation. So right now, Israel is the worst that it's ever been. Israel is just as bad as the nations that it replaced or worse. And at this moment where Israel is so incredibly wicked that they're more idolatrous and they're more adulterous and they're more murderous than the heathen nations that they replaced, right at the height of this, comes a new prophecy. Isaiah looks at Israel and says, you've had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king, but there's coming a righteous king. And this righteous king will save you all. You've had wicked king after wicked king. Ah, but this new prophecy, 
a righteous king will come. Let me tell you something, Isaiah 53 is so important. We have no idea how important Isaiah 53 is. Jesus talks about Isaiah 53. All the apostles talk about Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is referred to in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Hebrew, 1 Peter, and John, and 1 John. This chapter in the Old Testament is referred to more in the New Testament than any other chapter. In fact, virtually every single verse of Isaiah 53 is mentioned in the New Testament. Virtually every single verse. Verse. It is a very stunning, it is a very astonishing, it is a very shocking account of Christ 700 years before Christ ever showed up. This chapter, in this chapter, is the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the intercession of Christ, the coronation of Christ, and the salvation of Christ. Isaiah 53 has been called the fifth gospel. Let me just give you a little bit more detail about this second half of Isaiah, the salvation section, chapters 40 through 66. It's interesting, this section of Isaiah, it starts where the New Testament begins and it ends where the New Testament ends. I mean, chapter 40, it starts out, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the deserts a highway for our God. That's, that's John the Baptist. It starts out where the Gospels do with John the Baptist. You see the parallel between Isaiah and the New Testament. It also ends in the same place too. Uh, Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. So it starts how the New Testament starts. It ends how the New Testament ends. And Isaiah 53 is right there in the middle, the gospel right there in the book of Isaiah. It's an amazing testimony of Christ. And man, there's so much more. Man, I don't have time. There's not enough time, unless y'all want to stay here for three hours. There is not enough time for me to properly introduce this. There's so much information that I could give you, but I just can't. Maybe in the future we'll dig into this book a little deeper. But here's the thing about Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, the prophecy of Isaiah 53, does not start at Isaiah 53 verse 1. Doesn't. It starts in chapter 52 and verse 13. You see, when this book was written, the chapter breaks and the verses were not there. Okay? It was just one long letter. It was one long scroll. It was one long prophecy. And they really messed up when they put the chapter where they put it. They should have put it back at 52 verse 13 because that's where we get to talk about the servant. So let's ignore the chapter break. And the, my actual text for this morning is going to be chapters 52, verses 13 through 15. So we're going to look at your Bibles as we read it. Before we read it, let me check your comfort levels. Anybody too warm? 
Okay, just me. Okay. All right. We don't care about you, Miss Kelly. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but here we go. So uh, Isaiah chapter 52. Let's go back to verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what, for what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. So what these three verses Right here, Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. This is a summary of what you're about to read in Isaiah 53. So these three verses at the end of chapter 52, this is a summary of what's about to follow. Okay, So this is an introduction into the rest of the prophecy. This is a summary of the prophecy. So let's, let's look into these three verses, and uh, we're going to dig right into this this morning. Number one, verse 13, we're going to call this an astonishing revelation. An astonishing revelation. Let's look at verse 13. Behold, let's stop right there. Behold, pay attention is what he's trying to say. The language in these three verses is something I want to draw your attention to this morning. The language that he speaks. The language is worth noting. He says, behold, astonished, startle, which we'll get to startle. I'll tell you what that is in a minute here. And then speechless, because the, the kings couldn't speak. So we have all of this all of this language is like, this is stunning, this is shocking, this is astonishing. Behold, stop, look, wait, pay attention to this. It says, behold, my servant will prosper. Okay? Let's talk about that for a second. The Messiah is called a servant. Why is the Messiah called a servant here? Well, you have to understand, this is not the first time in Isaiah that the Messiah has been called a servant, okay? He's called, in a, he's called a servant four times in Isaiah. In Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53, okay? He's called a servant. And really, the word actually is slave. A lot of the some of the translators that translate the word of God have a problem with the word slave. So they don't put in slave, they put in servant. But the word is more accurately translated slave. Christ is a slave. Listen, slavery has always existed. It's always existed throughout time. It existed in the Bible days. The Jews were slaves in, in Egypt and they had slaves. And this is a relationship that's in the Bible that we have to know about to understand the Bible. Okay? So the Messiah was a slave. What was he a slave to? The Messiah was a slave to the will of God. He had a job to do, and that was his single focus was his job. His job was to submit to the law of the Father, 
to submit to the law of the master, and nothing else was more important to him. Nothing else was more important to Jesus than doing the job that he came here to do. That was out, he was a slave to it. Just like me and you, once we accept Christ, we become a slave to Christ. That's why we won't wander far away. We may dip off into the world for a little bit, but we're always going to get drawn back to God. We're always going to get drawn back to the Bible. We're going to get drawn back to Jesus because we are a slave to Christ and we can't be happy in the world. Okay, And that's what it means to be a slave. Jesus was a slave to the Father. He was a slave to the Master. Now, the lang- now, this is interesting, too. I thought this was interesting. It says, behold, my servant. It's interesting. That's not the only time the language behold, my, has been applied to the Messiah. For those of you who write down references, you might want to write these down. He's called, behold, my servant here. But also in Zechariah 3.8, it says, behold, my servant servant. But in Zechariah 6.12, this is all messianic. This is talking about the Messiah. In Zechariah 6.12, it says, behold the man. So now the Messiah is a servant, and now the Messiah is a man. Another messianic prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, it says, behold your king. So the Messiah is going to be a servant, he's going to be a man, he's going to be a king. In Isaiah 40, verse 9, also referencing the Messiah, behold your God. So the Messiah is going to be a servant, he's going to be a man, he's going to be a king, he's going to be a God. Does that strike any resemblance to the New Testament to you? Matthew shows us Christ as a king. Mark shows us Christ as a servant. Luke, who was a doctor, who knew the human anatomy, shows us Christ as a man. And John, he shows us Christ as God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, the Old Testament bleeds Christ. The Old Testament oozes Christ. I'm going to show you stuff today. I'm going to show you stuff in this series in the Old Testament that you're going to read, and you say, how in the world can the Jews not see that that's talking about Jesus And when you realize that these things were written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ ever walked the earth, it should embolden your faith, should embolden your faith in God, your faith in a heaven, your faith in Jesus. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now the servant... Now you say, okay, well, all right, so the, all right, let's talk about the Jews. Let's talk about the Jews reading this. Okay, the Jews have this in their Bible. When they read Isaiah 53, who do they think the servant is? Who do they think the servant is? The servant, they believe, is Israel. They believe the servant in this passage of Scripture is Israel. Now, to be fair, earlier in the book, 
Isaiah does call them a servant. But he also call, he calls Israel a servant. He calls himself a servant. He calls Eliakim a servant. He calls David a servant. So what is the difference between those servants and this servant, the suffering servant? All of those servants fail and fall short where this servant doesn't. This servant doesn't fail. This servant doesn't fall short. This servant does not break down. This servant does not give out. This servant never misses the mark. This servant at the end will be lifted up high and exalted. And that's interesting thing. High, lifted up, exalted. We have high, higher, and highest. He will be, he will be, he, he will be high. His resurrection. He will be lifted up. His ascension. And he will be greatly exalted. That is his coronation as king of this world at his second coming. He will be exalted. But you know what? You know what they're doing? You know what he's doing here? When it says that he will be exalted, he's telling us that there is a victory that is assured before the suffering. You see, before he goes into the suffering, in the next chapter, he will be pierced. He will be crushed. He will be bruised. He will be scourged. He will be oppressed. That's coming. That's around the corner. We're going to get to that. But before we get to that, we're assured victory is for sure. We are assured victory right here at the beginning. Yes, the pain and the agony and the anguish and the crushing and the bruising and the oppression and the piercing and the beating and the spitting and the crown and the cross and the death. It's all in front of us. But before we get there, victory is assured. He will be exalted. Psalms 110, 1 and 2. Let me make sure I've got the right spot here. Psalms 110, 1 and 2, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod out of, the strength, uh, out of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. The right hand of God is the highest place you can be. And that place is for the Messiah. Not only will He destroy the enemies, He will subdue the enemies. The enemies will become His friends. No other one can do that but Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Oh, this, this just floored me. This floored me when I read it. Isaiah 49, 6. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give for thee a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation under the end of the earth. Jews were not concerned with proselytizing Gentiles. They were, they were not concerned with that. This is so clearly Christ. God, a king, will become a man. He will be a servant. He will serve his God. He will serve his disciples. 
He will execute the will of His Master. He will execute the will of His disciples. You know, Christianity is the only religion where the God humbles Him, where the deity humbles Himself like He does, like Jesus does. Christianity is the only one. Christianity is the only one where God comes down and He humbles Himself and He becomes man and He dies. We have a journey. We're going the next five weeks, we're going on a journey. We're going to journey through suffering. We're going to journey through sorrow. And we're going to journey through pain. But before he takes us on this journey, he assures us there is a victory. Hebrews 2.9, But we do not see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for every man. And that brings us to verse 14. We're going to call this verse an astonishing humiliation. An astonishing humiliation. Let's read verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Let's look at that word astonished right there. So much of Hebrew language comes from the context that the word is used in. A word can mean several different things depending on the words around it. Okay? And that's what's so interesting about Hebrew. This word astonished, in the context that it's used in, it means stunned. It means shocked. I'm astonished. I'm shocked. I'm stunned at what I see. And it was for the Old Testament Jews to understand this. This was a message to the Old Testament Jews. But they're thinking the Messiah is going to be marred beyond recognition. Like you're not even going to be tell that he's human. You know, a lot of the Old Testament Jews thought the Messiah was going to be ugly. They thought he was, they were, you know, they thought he was just going to be an ugly dude walking around, you know. But that, because they could not understand this concept of the Messiah being marred. You know what marred means? Marred means defaced, destroyed, disfigured. This verse says that it would not be recognizable as human. Piece of meat. Not even recognizable. Isaiah 50, verse 6. Listen to this. This is in the book of Isaiah. I'm not reading this from the New Testament. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. That's in the Old Testament. Psalm 22, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth, cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. I tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. He can look down. He can see his bones. You can look at his skin and see his bones staring through his skin. We know that he was beaten relentlessly. We know that a crown of thorns was pushed down on his head. Thorns two and three inches long going into his skull, going into his eye sockets, going into his flesh. We know the sleeplessness that he endured. 
He was kept awake all night, kept from sleep. He was slapped. He was punched. He was spit on. And the Bible says when the Jews looked at him, they were shocked. They were stunned. And they looked at him on that cross and they said, that's not our Messiah. He doesn't even look human. How can he be our Messiah? Many saw his brutalization that day in Israel. Many Jews that day on Calvary at Golgotha on that hill in Jerusalem, they saw his brutalization. They saw his humiliation. And they saw him bloody, beaten, and battered. Couldn't be recognized as human. And they said, this is not the Messiah we expected. This isn't the Messiah we wanted. Many, many people saw him on that day in, in Calvary. But everybody's going to see his exaltation. Everybody's going to see his glorification. Everybody's going to see him come in honor. Everybody's going to see him exalted. Everybody's going to see him extolled. Everybody's going to see him honored. Which brings us to verse 15. And we're going to call this an astonishing exaltation. Let's read the first part of verse 15. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. Let's stop right there. Let's talk about that word sprinkle for a second. Okay, we're going to get into some textual things here when it comes to interpreting the, the, or translating the Hebrew into our language, okay? We're going to get into some things here. And remember what I said earlier about the Hebrew language. So much of the Hebrew language has to do with the context and the parallels that are used in the verse and the words around it, okay? So that word thus, at the beginning of verse 15, the word thus, it connects sprinkled back to astonished, Okay, so it connects those two words. Okay, now that word for sprinkle, it, it stand alone. It does mean to sprinkle. It, it really it means to spurt. It means to spurt up or to spurt forth. And by itself, it can mean sprinkle. But when you connect it to the word astonish and, and you see that there's a parallel to it. It kind of means to spurt up, like you're spurted up or you're, you're startled, okay? And then it's followed by the kings will shut their mouths. And so while it can mean sprinkle, the word used in the context is a metaphor for being startled, for being sprung up, for springing up out of your chair. And uh, I was at the shop the other day and this guy he said, all right, when I leave, I'm going to blow my train horn. And so I said, what is that under your hood? And I said, that's a train horn. He said, I'm going to blow it when I leave. I knew he was going to blow it. I knew he was going to do it. But man, when he hit that train horn, I jumped three feet in the air. Okay. I knew it was coming, but it still scared me. But you know, this word, it means to startle. And that's really what the word means. Now, if it means sprinkle, literally means sprinkle, that's true too. 
Because he's going to clean and he's going to purify the nations. So that is truth in and of itself. But the Jews, the Jews were shocked and stunned at his disfigurement. But the kings and nations of the earth, they're going to be startled. They're going to be speechless at his exaltation. When Christ comes back, when He returns, the nations and the kings will be rendered dumbfounded. They'll be rendered speechless. The sun will go out. The moon will go out. The stars will go out. Christ will appear in the sky in a blaze of glory and nobody's going to say a word. They're all going to be speechless at that. All, 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 the, all the people will hide in the rocks and mountains and they're going to ask that the rocks and mountains fall on them to hide them from, from the King of Kings when He comes. But you know why He's coming after the kings? Why He's coming after rulers? Because Jesus is coming back to rule. He's coming back to be in charge. He is going to be the only ruler. Psalms 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. When God installs His King, everybody's going to see it. Everybody's going to see it. And all the politicians who communicate their policies, they're going to be quiet. And all the dictators that demand their demands, that shout their demands, they're going to be mute. The superpowers will be powerless when the eastern sky splits wide open. And Jesus comes back. He will be exalted. And all the abusers and all the wicked and all the blasphemers and all the deniers, they'll have nothing to say when Christ comes in all His glory. Why? For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. They may not have been told about the second coming of Christ, but He will come. He will come. And when He comes, they will see it. And when they see it, they will understand what it is. So here's what we got. We have a marring, disfiguring, Death. And then we have a high and lifted up great exaltation. So what comes in the middle? Resurrection. Resurrection comes in the middle. Psalm 1610. For you will not abandon my soul to uh, abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow the Holy One to seek corruption, to undergo decay. That verse in Psalm 16, that is about the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter preached that in Acts 2 when he preached, uh, when they got the Holy Spirit, Peter preached out of Psalms 16. He preached that verse. 
He will be high. He will be lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. Jesus Christ is coming back today. And man, today we, we feel the, the pressure on us. And there's pressure on the church. And there's pressure on Christians. And there's pressure on the Bible. You, they are coming after this book. You listen to me. You listen to me. They're coming after that book. If they'll come after Mr. Potato Head, they'll come after that book. You hear me? Next is your Mr. Coffee. It's going, it's going too. Ain't going to be Mr. Coffee anymore. But they're coming after that book. It's going to be offensive. They're going to throw preachers in jail for reading certain portions. It's coming. I never thought I'd see it, but it's coming. But one day, Jesus will be exalted. I will rise again. I will. You're going to see one day. Jesus is coming back. I have a very fourth and final point. And it's very, very short. Very short. And it's the first line of Isaiah 53.1. It says, who has believed our message? Who's believed it? And the fourth point this morning is an astonishing rejection. Because the Jews didn't believe it. The Jews had it. They had all this information. Man, when Jesus was born, they had Isaiah 53. When he, when he came into Jerusalem on the donkey on Palm Sunday, they had Isaiah 53. When he overthrew the tables in the temple, they had Isaiah 53. When they beat him and they spit on him and they mocked him and they hung him on a tree, they had Isaiah 53. But they rejected him. Astonishing. They rejected their Messiah. After the Bible prophesied, they said this would happen to him. They rejected him. Will you reject today? Will you reject Christ today? Will you believe in the gospel? That he died, he was buried, and he resurrected from the dead. There is, there is more, more uh, proof of Christ's resurrection, it's well documented in ancient literature more than any other event. There is more documentation on the, the resurrection of Christ than there is that, that Alexander the Great ever lived. There's more documentation, but you don't see history teachers questioning uh, Alexander the Great, do you? But man, that's the gospel. Will you believe the gospel today? Will you, if you haven't already, will you believe the gospel today? You know, and that's what I committed to give my life to, is to stand up here and convince people that a man come back from the dead. And he did. And that is the gospel. And if we put our faith and trust in that, he will save us and he will take us to heaven Man, prophecy is just so amazing. It just proves that God speaks to man. And Isaiah 53 is just a wonderful chapter. And I'm going to look forward to digging into it.
But today, if you've never accepted Christ, if you've never accepted the gospel, if you've never believed on him and put your faith and trust in Christ, then today is the day.